kind of go over what, what is roughly the history of our sort of perception of our place within the universe, because I think this contextualizes the rest of the discussion. So if you imagine all of the lights in Rome sort of going off at night and assuming that there are no clouds, like uh, it's been the case last week, at least, uh, what would you see? Well, you'd see something like this. So let's just walk through our sort of phenomenological impression of the night sky. So one of the first things that might strike you would be all the stars. So uh, seemingly countless stars in the sky. And a major point in our understanding of our place in the universe was when we realized that, yes, indeed, our sun uh, is a star like the stars that we see in the night sky. It just happens to be quite a lot closer than the next nearest star. So stars, there are many of them. The sun is one of them. And in a sense, it's very average, which actually, from the point of view of life, is a good thing. I can talk more about that later. Now, to the ancients, there seemed to be what looked like stars. They were indistinguishable, except for the fact that maybe some of them were brighter. And also, they didn't move exactly the same way that the fixed stars moved. Uh, they were called wanderers, and it's from the Greek term wanderers that we actually get the name planets. So there are the planets. Uh, these are some of the planets that were known to the ancients, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter. And again, another major point uh, in our understanding of our position in the universe was when we realized that indeed the Earth was a planet like these other planets all orbiting around the sun. So, so Earth was not alone in being a planet both in our solar system and now uh, we're in an age where we know of indeed thousands of what we call exoplanets. So these are planets in other solar systems orbiting other stars. And it's kind of a golden age for exoplanet research right now. Uh, we, we're discovering more and more all the time. We know of planets which are Jupiter size and larger. We know planets that are about Earth size and even smaller, thousands of planets. So planets are not unique to the solar system. As it turns out, they're commonplace as well. So another major feature, which would be very difficult to see, even sometimes in Kansas, where I come from in the city, uh, is the Milky Way, the Via Lacta. So the Milky Way, what is the Milky Way? Well, it's our view of the galaxy that we're in. We're in it and we see it edge on. Uh, and, and so that, that's what the Milky Way is, essentially. Now, Milky Way, a galaxy, there are many galaxies. Uh, Milky Way, as far as we know, is kind of an average galaxy. Uh, they come in all shapes and sizes. I just depicted a few of them here. And just to give you this, a sense of how many galaxies there are, uh, this is the Hubble Deep Field image. So the Hubble Deep Field image uh, was taken as an interesting experiment. Uh, so the Hubble Space Telescope, or HST, uh, astronomers decided to point it at what looked like an empty patch of sky and just to image it. Uh, so they imaged that patch of sky. And what did they find? Well, after uh, a while, uh, they got this image here. And what does it show? Well, it looks like stars, but in fact, most of those points are galaxies. So galaxies here is prevalent in this image as the stars in the night sky here. And remember, each of these galaxies themselves will have billions of stars, billions of planets. So as you're looking at this image, looking at this tremendous amount of, of, of space here, you may be wondering, well, is there life anywhere there? And I think that's uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about uh, in this talk, hopefully. But is there life anywhere else in the universe, uh, intelligent or not, now or in the past? Uh, and how did that life start? So that's, that's what I want to address in this talk. So let's talk about what is, in a lot of ways, the easiest thing to do, which in principle would be to detect uh, advanced civilizations, advanced alien civilizations. So let's talk about that. 
this is a famous uh, equation uh, that you may have heard about, the Drake equation, uh, derived by Frank Drake back in the 60s, who's a radio astronomer. Uh, and what it gives is, it, it, uh, so we'll walk you through the ends, so it gives you ends, a number of uh, detectable civilizations, uh, intelligent, uh, where uh, intelligent life, and it's a function of all these different terms here, uh, where that's the average rate of uh, star formation, that's the fraction of stars that have planets, that's the number of those planets that uh, support can support life, that's the fraction of planets uh, of those with, where life develops, that's the fraction of planets where intelligent life will go on to develop, that's the fraction of planets that would emit detectable signals, and that's the length of time that a civilization would emit detectable signals before they realized either, wait a minute, this is a bad idea, or that they would destroy themselves. Uh, so that's the Drake equation. And of course, there are people who have argued that there should be other terms there, and we're going to maybe talk about that. But the first two essentially are things that we can uh, start to try to get at, especially the first term uh, with uh, astronomy. Uh, for instance, the average rate of star formation, we can, we can estimate the number of stars that have planets. Again, we're getting a much better idea about that. The rest of them are just uh, basically guesses. So you may not be surprised to hear that the number of principal detectable civilizations that that equation predicts ranges from much less than one, implying that we are all alone, at least in the Milky Way galaxy, to much greater than one, which also is problematic because uh, if it's much greater than one, the question is, why haven't we found aliens yet? Well, let's talk about the search uh, that we've done so far for extraterrestrial intelligence. So that's often abbreviated SETI, so search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, so there's passive SETI. Passive SETI is the easiest. And since it's looking at scanning the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, looking for anything that isn't a naturally occurring signal, uh, essentially, something coming from uh, some natural astronomical phenomenon. So there have been a number of projects looking at different chunks of the electromagnetic spectrum of which visible light, as you see here, is just a small section of it, the part that we can see with our eyes. But uh, at longer wavelengths, there's infrared, there's radio, uh, there's uh, microwave radio, et cetera. Uh, and so a number of these projects have looked at uh, these different stretches of the electromagnetic spectrum, have not found anything. Uh, the, the, the most promising signal that, that has been detected is this wow signal. So in 1977, the radio astronomer, he was a graduate student, Jerry Amon, he detected uh, what was an anomalously bright signal in his, in his data and actually wrote wow here. And when my wife saw that, she said that, wow, his handwriting is so much better than yours. And so, <laughs> which is absolutely true. Was, uh, uh, now, it's anomalously bright. Uh, so you can see here, the brightness of this signal is represented by the height of this peak. So you see how much higher this peak is corresponding to the wow signal than anything else around it. It's really bright. It's, it just jumped right out of the data. Signal from an alien civilization? Well, uh, Jerry Amon and the other astronomers have gone back to try to look for this signal and have not found it. Not found it. Uh, so seen only here and never again. So what does that mean? Well, as someone who, who sometimes moonlights as a radio astronomer, uh, I can tell you that when you see a very bright signal that you see maybe once and doesn't repeat, we typically assume that that's what's called RFI, radio frequency interference, which is the bane of a radio astronomer's existence. 
So in a sense, the wow signal probably is from an uh, intelligent civilization, or that intelligent civilization would be Earth. Uh, so probably has a terrestrial origin. So, but that's the closest that we've come to actually detecting anything that may remotely be uh, a sign of, of something. Then there's active SETI, and active SETI involves actually uh, sending a message to a place where there might be a sort of an older civilization, an intelligent civilization. So in 1974, the uh, unfortunately former Arecibo telescope sent out this, uh, essentially this message here, uh, to the M13 globular cluster. So why'd they send it to the M13 globular cluster? Well, I can answer that as a question. It takes a little bit longer to explain why they chose that. But nevertheless, uh, they did that. That's one example of active SETI. Another example would be the Voyager space probes. So uh, they had uh, on, on the side of, of, of the probes, the Voyager golden record, uh, which had an actually uh, an album uh, that contained the sounds of Earth, so greetings in different languages, examples of, of music, and on the cover, various messages which could be interpreted by some alien civilization that might pick up Voyager. Uh, none of them have been picked up yet, we know, because they're still sending back data, which is actually relevant for some of my work even now. But as a scientist, when we think about life in the universe, uh, we like to think of everything as a Gaussian distribution. So we like to think of everything as a bell curve here. Uh, and if you, unless you have some strong justification, you usually assume that uh, you're right in the middle of, uh, or what you're interested in is right in the middle of that distribution. You know? So what are we talking about here? Well, if you imagine civilizations older than us being out here, civilizations or, or, or life, uh, planets with life younger than us out here, then the zeroth order approximation you'd assume is that we are right here. Uh, because if we're anywhere else other than here, that would require, in principle, some explanation. Why are we older than average? Why are we younger than average? And scientists can't answer that. So the default assumption is that in the distribution of uh, the age of life on various planets, we are, uh, are probably right in the middle. And the argument is that the universe is very big and very old, and so probably uh, you would have such a distribution. So at the low end, where life is just getting started on planets, you would have simple life, bacteria, for instance. But then at the other end, you'd have, there's no reason why you wouldn't, more advanced life. Uh, uh, where, with uh, planets that have uh, more technologically advanced civilizations, these are, in principle, the things that you write science fiction novels about here. But as we've seen with the, the SETI project, so far, as, we currently, as far as we currently know, there's no evidence that it, there's anything... Uh, out here uh, above us in this distribution. We haven't detected any evidence for that. And that actually is, uh, is a perplexing question for a lot of uh, scientists. So there's a famous what's called Fermi paradox, uh, which is because of the arguments I just presented, uh, Enrico Fermi uh, asked the question, where is everybody? Where are the intelligent aliens at? And this is a question that people still ask. It's still a, a, a question in the astronomical community. And sometimes this debate spills out into the popular press. So you have the BBC asking, why haven't we found aliens? Vox uh, says, well, we maybe never will find aliens. Here are 12 reasons why we haven't found aliens. Here, uh, Astronomy Magazine says, that why haven't we found aliens? Well, we have closed minds. That's why we haven't found them yet. Uh, and the SETI Institute, of course, has a number of ideas about why we haven't found aliens yet. All this is to say that, so as far as we know right now, uh, there's no uh, intelligent life out there, which, again, uh, contradicts what you would assume from that sort of distribution, that 
you would naively expect. Well, let's look at the other end of the distribution at simple life. So if we're looking at simple life, we can't just go out and uh, we can't wait uh, for you know uh, bacteria to send us a message from space. Uh, so what we have to do is go and look for it typically, although there are exceptions to that that I'll talk about. And when we, we talk about going out in space and looking at things, turning over rocks, trying to find uh, simple uh, life, that restricts us practically to the solar system. So the next, now the discussion is going to be moving to the solar system. So we look at Earth. Uh, Earth has some really obvious signs that there's life on it. So if you just look at the picture of the planet here, you see this green here. Well, of course, those are plants. So if you see a planet, you see green like that, you've got life uh, very clearly. But what if you couldn't tell the color of the planet? What if it was too far away? Well, you could still uh, actually identify that Earth has life on it by looking at the spectrum of the atmosphere. And by looking at the spectrum of the atmosphere, what you could see is that the, the abundance of oxygen in the atmosphere is way, 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 way above what you would naturally expect. Uh, and that is because of the presence of photosynthetic plant life on Earth. It increases the abundance of oxygen way above what you'd expect with a normal non-biological chemical equilibrium. So we'd say there's a non-equilibrium amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. So you could tell, uh, even if the Earth was, uh, was far away, aliens could tell that there's life on Earth just by looking at the spectrum of the atmosphere. Now, looking a little bit more closely, of course, you can see lots of liquid water on the surface. Uh, this is also important. And anomalously, Earth also has a very large moon, and this may play another role that we'll talk about later. Um, so let's go to our, our next-door neighbor, Mars, okay? So Mars, as you see, there's no surface water on here. What you see is the dry desert of the mid-latitudes, and then these extremely large, actually, polar ice caps. And the polar ice caps are sort of a clue that maybe at one point Mars was covered uh, in substantial oceans of liquid water. And so this is what we think Mars looked like uh, earlier on in the history of the solar system, uh, oceans of liquid water. And even now, we see evidence that there's occasionally liquid water on Mars. So here are examples of essentially uh, gullies, which form when uh, some of the ice, which is under the surface of the soil on Mars, melts and uh, causes these, these runoff gullies here. So even now on Mars, there's occasionally uh, surface water, which exists for a little while before it evaporates or freezes again. So life on Mars. So we've, we've actually been surprised about Mars. Uh, it was long thought that there was life of some kind on the planet. So the astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli uh, looked at Mars very closely, and he identified what he called canali on Mars. And uh, he, he didn't think that these were anything that were made by an intelligent civilization, but he did think that somehow they were related to microbial life, for instance, maybe something like algae on Mars. Uh, very famously, the... Uh, Wealthy American amateur astronomer Percival Lowell heard canali and he thought canals. And if there are canals, then there must be canal builders. And so he spent a lot of money and built a very nice observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, uh, including uh, this telescope here, where he looked at Mars and uh, his imagination sort of got carried away. And he developed this really elaborate theory about Martian civilizations and Mars being a dying planet, et cetera produce these rather Kandinsky-esque drawings here, sort of the, the Martian blah writer school. And of course, this gets into the popular imagination. You have H.G. Wells, talking about the War of the Worlds, Martians invading Earth, etc. Well, in the latter half of the 20th century, we got to the point where we could actually send something to Mars and take a look. So this is 
one of the Viking landers and one of the main uh, people involved with the Viking project, Carl Sagan here, gets to Mars. And what does it look like? Well, it looks like that. Now we all know what Mars looks like. Uh, it looks like a desert. Uh, except even unlike Earth's deserts, there's absolutely no obvious sign of life here. No plants, nothing like that. No matter how primitive, no matter how uh, spiky looking, nothing like that. But what about sort of more hidden signs of life? Well, the Viking landers had what were called the biological experiments module, which you see it with the exploded diagram of here. And they contained a number of instruments designed to look, examine the soil, examine the atmosphere, etc., for more subtle signs of, for instance, microbial life. And what did they find? Well, they actually found essentially nothing. Uh, the most that they found was this molecule, chlorobenzene, uh, which possibly could be related to life, but also probably has, again, formation roots, which don't involve uh, microbial life at all. So that was, so that's the state of life on Mars. Uh, although if you're of a certain age, you probably are familiar with this image here. Uh, this is ALH84001 which is a meteorite found in Antarctica. And what's so special about this meteorite? Well, it's a bit of Mars, uh, a bit of Mars that sort of was blasted off on an impact uh, millions of years ago and ended up on Earth. And on this particular meteorite was this feature here, which uh, was thought at one point to be sort of a fossilized bacterium or something like that. Uh, this was a big, made a big deal in the 90s. So President Clinton had an announcement about this. There was an episode of the X-Files about it, actually. Which is how you really know it entered the popular imagination. Uh, however, uh, as it turns out, what we think now is that this is not anything like that. It's, it's just a naturally occurring mineral deposit, essentially. Uh, in terms of Mars, we have no evidence of life having existed on Mars as, as of right now, uh, uh, either now or in the past. But what about Venus? So let's let's go to our next neighboring planet. And Venus, in many ways, Earth's twin, at least in terms of size. As you see here, it's not obviously a desert. Uh, in fact, just if Mars was you know, imagined to be the place with this dying civilization, Venus was thought to be uh, uh, covered in swamps and jungles, uh, things like that. So the, the, the chemist uh, Arrhenius uh, first suggested that, and then it also sort of entered the popular imagination. What is Venus actually like? Well, rather than being a, a jungle, it's more like something that Dante would describe in the Inferno. Uh, it has a, a temperature, a surface temperature of 460 degrees Celsius all year, every year, all over the planet, every day, because of the thick cloud cover. Uh, the cloud cover is, is so thick that there's an atmospheric pressure on the surface about 100 times what we're experiencing right now. Uh, and there's acid rain. So if you were teleported to, to Venus, to the surface of Venus right now, it looked like that, and you'd very briefly catch a glimpse of it before you were simultaneously burned, crushed, and dissolved by the acid rain, uh, which is essentially what happened to the Soviet probes, which they sent there. They were built a little bit like tanks, uh, but even so, they only lasted about two hours uh, before being simultaneously burned, crushed, and dissolved. Uh, so obviously the surface, not in a very amenable location for life. But you may be wondering, I heard a couple of years ago, maybe life on Venus. So what was that about? So maybe you heard this back in 2020. Uh, there was a lot, a lot of attention paid to Venus. And the question, maybe we found life there. Well, so that was actually uh, spurred on by this paper uh, that some of my colleagues were involved in, uh, where they tried to detect the gas phosphine in, in the clouds, uh, in the atmosphere of Venus which is actually, so the astrobiologists are still interested in Venus, 
but the thinking is that if there is life on Venus, it has to be in the atmosphere because the surface is just uh, about as hostile as you can imagine to life. So, so maybe somewhere in the atmosphere. So this gas phosphine, they argue, uh, is one of these biomarkers, like the oxygen in our atmosphere. They argue that there is a non-equilibrium amount of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus and that that was perhaps a su suggestive of life uh, producing this phosphine uh, on Earth. However, as you can maybe tell, this article uh, appeared in Nature Astronomy and uh, gave the editor a number of gray hairs, I'm sure. Uh, there are a lot, notice all these corrections and agenda and matter. Is, this was perhaps the fiercest scientific debate I've ever seen uh, over this paper. Uh, and why is that? Well, somewhat awkwardly for me, some other colleagues of mine very quickly came out with another paper saying, well, in fact, they didn't detect phosphine. Uh, so, so there's a raging and, and surprisingly acrimonious debate about even whether phosphine was detected. Um, well, let's, let's grant that phosphine was detected. And, uh, but even if it was detected, there may actually be normal non-biological chemical ways of producing it that don't involve life. Uh, as it turns out, we don't really know a lot about the chemistry of phosphine because it is unfortunately poisonous and explosive. Uh, and so what that means is that uh, chemists and researchers uh, don't like to, to work with it. They don't like their students to work with it. And universities don't like their chemists working with it. Uh, however, uh, the recent, this recent phosphine paper uh, has no doubt uh, got a lot of them filling out safety forms uh, to work with phosphine, I'm sure. Um, so I expect there'll be a lot more uh, information on the chemistry of phosphine coming out. Well, one way or another, we're actually going to learn a lot more about Venus in 2027 because NASA selected uh, this mission to go to Venus, the very Dominicanly named Veritas mission. Dominican in name and coloration, actually. Uh, so which one of you was involved with that? Uh, uh, but yes, so the Veritas mission, uh, which is going to go to Venus, is uh, selected over a couple other missions. And so it will study the atmosphere of Venus, the surface of Venus. Uh, and so if there is life uh, on Venus in the clouds, then this uh, Veritas mission will hopefully reveal the truth of that, so to speak. All right. So in terms of the probability of life, as far as we know right now, and I have to keep qualifying everything I say about the, uh, with that because that's the way science works. The as far as we know right now, again, there are no uh, sort of older, more advanced civilizations anywhere. And as far as we know right now, there are no uh, places where there is even simpler life. And so, what is this? The dis so, this is the distribution that scientists naively assume—a Gaussian sort of distribution. But what's the distribution that we actually see? As of again, right now, it's uh, more like what we call a delta function here, uh, val single value only here on Earth and, and zero everywhere else. So again, that's that's the way things are at the moment, uh, which is shocking because when we look out again, we see billions of stars, billions of planets, billions of galaxies everywhere. But life has consistently eluded us, uh, consistently eluded us. And it's really an exception to this otherwise consistent trend in astronomy. So why is that? Well, probably something that we'll talk about later on in the conference. Well, let's move from talking about the search for life uh, elsewhere in, in the universe to how life may have originated uh, here on Earth. Well, it originated uh, in this period, the Archean period, which is about 4,000 to 2,500 million years ago, MYA, million years ago. Um, and if, again, if we could transport ourselves back to Earth uh, 4,000 million years ago, 
we would also die, uh, not as quickly as we would on Venus, but the Earth would look a little bit like this. Uh, for one, there wouldn't be any oxygen for us to breathe. Remember, the oxygen in the atmosphere comes about because of plants. So you need plant life in order to make the oxygen. Uh, at that time in the, in the solar system's history, there was much heavier bombardment from comets and asteroids, and this is going to play a role uh, later on, so keep that tucked away in the back of your mind. Uh, the Earth was warmer. Volcanic activity was more prominent. Uh, and so you had this situation where the, uh, the Earth at the time was not very Earth-like, uh, we would think. It was not very conducive to life, and yet it's during this period that life arose on Earth. And notice here, in amongst all these sort of uh, catastrophes happening, you have this sort of tidal pool right here, this sort of tranquil tidal pool. So why, is, why did the artist uh, uh, show that? Well, this is a tidal pool uh, with these rocks in it, which are actually called stromatolites. And stromatolites are essentially sort of bacterial colonies. They form these sort of rocky mounds. And astrobiologists think that these may be representative of some of the very first organisms on Earth. Uh, these microbial colonies. This is in Australia. Uh, and so tidal pools are one of the places that uh, people who study the origin of life think life may have started on Earth. Another possibility are hydrothermal vents. And again, like most things in science, there's a fierce debate between the people who think life started at hydrothermal vents and the people who thought life started in tidal pools. Uh, Darwin actually probably would have uh, favored the tidal pool theory. He, uh, being a Victorian British scientist, called them by the more quaint term, warm little ponds uh, here. But he argued that essentially if you had the right stuff under the right conditions in a warm little pond that you could, voila, get life. So Darwin sort of a, a, a forebearer of the tidal pool uh, faction of, in astrobiology. Now, people have tried to essentially reproduce the conditions of early Earth in the laboratory through experiments uh, modeled after this one. This is the Miller-Urey experiment. So in the Miller-Urey experiment, uh, Miller, as uh, a graduate student, uh, decided to try to bring together what he thought were the gases representative of Earth's atmosphere at the time, uh, water, of course, and send discharges, so sparks through it. And what did he get? Well, he got orange goop. Uh, well, orange goop is the, maybe the quasi-technical term for lots of organic molecules. When you see something like that, you've got lots of organic material there. And you got something called prebiotic molecules. And we're going to talk about what prebiotic molecules are. You didn't get life, uh, prebiotic molecules. Um, now, even though nowadays we don't think that the atmospheric composition that he assumed was, was correct, people have gone back and essentially redone this experiment with different variations. Uh, and they get more or less the same result. You get orange goop, which is actually very interesting, uh, and we'll talk about why, but you don't actually get life uh, from any of these experiments. The term that we use for the origin of life in the astrobiology community is abiogenesis, abiogenesis. Uh, however, in most of history, it, it's essentially the idea of spontaneous generation, which is an idea that Aristotle had, for instance. And we're talking about the transition from non-living matter to living organisms here. So you may be wondering, okay, uh, what is a living organism here? What, how is it different from non-living matter? Uh, we're going to talk about all of that, but so what the term that we use typically is abiogenesis here. So what is life? Again, we're trying to get the scientific perspective of what life is. Well, here we have E. coli bacteria, which are model organisms in biology because they're studied as essentially sort of an archetype of monocellular organisms. This is a cartoon version of an E. coli bacterium here. So what are the major ingredients in life? Well, there's water, of course. 
There's a cell membrane, there are proteins, and there's DNA and RNA. So let's look at each one in particular. Uh, so water, as we talked about water, very important. Earth very obviously has uh, surface liquid. It's the only one of only two locations in the solar system that has surface liquids, and the only one that has, uh, at the moment, surface water. So of course, Mars at one point uh, probably has surface oceans. And uh, Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, may not have surface water, but it may have, so what you see is essentially an icy shell, and underneath that icy shell may be liquid oceans. Uh, possibly, there are a couple missions that will be going to Europa to study it more. But water, very important, uh, sort of a, a necessary ingredient. Membranes. So cell membranes also very important. In the laboratory, we can make uh, these membranes fairly easily. If you have the right molecules, you add them to water and you shake up the, shake them up a bit, and you can get all these different things, including liposomes, which are essentially primitive uh, membranes, cell membranes. Now, real cell membranes, though, are actually much more complicated than mere barriers. Uh, they have all these things in them. So what are these? Well, these blobs here are, are proteins. There are various molecules uh, also associated with the, the cell membrane. It's actually very complicated. Uh, a cell membrane is involved not just with keeping things out or in, but with the diffusion of matter, uh, liquids, etc., from inside the cell to outside the cell. There is a very complex uh, set of biological mechanisms that control that. The cell membrane is also essentially how the cell talks to its environment with these these are sort of, uh, molecules here. So cell membranes are, in fact, very complicated. And uh, what we make in the laboratory is not really what you would want uh, from a, a, a biological cell membrane. Uh, you need ways, again, for things to get in and out. And that's a very complicated process. Now, these purple blobs, these, these uh, membrane proteins, uh, which control, again, a lot of the, the diffusion of material in and out of the cell. So proteins, uh, there's just one example of proteins. Um, and proteins are uh, essentially chains of amino acids. Uh, amino acids are building blocks of proteins. And here's an example, the protein myoglobin. Uh, it has 153 amino acids linked together. And then those amino acids both interact with themselves and they interact with water to form these very complicated shapes. Proteins have extremely complicated shapes that many people spend their whole careers trying to figure out exactly the shape of. Uh, now, but... But in a sense, proteins are, are just complex molecules. Uh, molecules, although with uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of atoms. Now, these amino acids that are uh, the sort of constituents of proteins, uh, there are many different types, but uh, life only uses 22 to make proteins. These are the proteinogenic uh, amino acids. And we're going to talk about this. Uh, they have different handednesses. We're going to talk about what that means. And they only use essentially the, the what we call the L enantiomer. So, so don't worry, just we'll, we'll talk about that. So this is the simplest amino acid. It's called glycine. Uh, so keep that in mind. Probably a more complicated example with this ring structure here. So what do I mean by the handedness of a molecule? Well, imagine you have a pair of gloves. Now those gloves, you can't stack them directly on top of one another. Uh, they're mirror images of one another. And so there are many molecules which are like that as well. They're non-overlapping mirror images of one another. And so with amino acids here, we talk about the L enantiomer, the L sort of handedness of the molecule, and the D enantiomer, the, the, the sort of right-handed handedness of the molecule. And life uh, consistently 
usually in, in cases like this, likes to use one or the other. And in the case of amino acids, essentially only proteins only use the L enantiomer of, of these amino acids. So why don't they use the right hand? Look, it's a, it's a mystery. Uh, but with one in which there's a suggestion at the end of the talk. Um, so most chemical reactions, though, produce an equal amount of left and right. It's actually very difficult to get more of one or the other. And there are many chemists, research chemists, who spend their whole careers figuring out how to get a little bit more of one or the other. Usually they want a little bit more of the one that life prefers. Because, for instance, in medicine, the other enantiomer may cause side effects. So you want to make as little of that as possible. And again, amino acids, uh, like essentially exclusively uses the L enantiomer. So let's switch gears now to DNA and RNA. So if proteins are made up of chains of amino acids, DNA and RNA uh, are chains of nucleotides. So this is an example of a nucleotide. It's a little bit more complicated than an amino acid. You have a phosphate group, you have a sugar, and then you have a nitrogenous base. And nitrogenous base is the thing which changes from one nucleotide to another and gives uh, the language of genetics. So RNA uses the nuclear bases uh, here, cytosine, guanine, adenine, and uracil, which form, uh, are usually abbreviated as C, G, A, and U. DNA uses all the same except swaps out uracil for thymine. And so uh, the DNA, essentially, genomic sequences are given as C, G, A, or T. So these are the language, this is the language of genetics here, but what they're talking about are essentially uh, the nucleobases of the nucleotides. All right, so now we have sort of a chicken and egg problem here. Which came first, proteins or DNA and RNA? Now, amino acids are easier to make, and people thought for a while that proteins probably came first. However, if you got one protein, that would probably be, that would be it, because proteins can't self-replicate. They, they need RNA uh, to make, you need RNA to make more proteins, essentially. And so now the thinking is not that proteins came first, but rather that RNA came first. This is the so-called RNA world hypothesis. And RNA is very interesting. It can do essentially everything we want the first bio biological molecule to be able to do. It can self-replicate, and you can make more RNA. We have one RNA. It can catalyze chemical reactions, which is also an important thing that cells do. Uh, you can form proteins, as I mentioned, from uh, RNA. And you can store genetic information. So all this very important stuff, RNA can do it. Uh, and so if, you, if you're trying to think about what is more likely to have led to life uh, from a starting biological molecule, RNA is the more likely candidate here. But RNA, again, is a polymer of many, many, many nucleotides. So how do you start to get these nucleotides linked up together? Uh, it's not trivial to do. But uh, this is a major area of research for uh, the origin of life community. And we don't actually have a, a real answer, although we have suggested, uh, research has suggested how you might do it. Uh, you can start to get these nucleotides to, to link together. And one way to do that is to take a solution of these nucleotides and dry them out, rehydrate them, dry them out, rehydrate them. So alternating wet and dry cycles can, can do that. Depending on what you're drying them on, that can also make a, a play a role. So if you are drying them onto clay surfaces, that also plays a role that helps uh, in, in principle uh, this polymerization, we would call it, process. And so if we're talking about wet dry cycles, if we're talking about clay surfaces, you may start to get a picture of tidal pools. And so this is again, uh, these are, these are arguments uh, for life originating in tidal pools rather than, for instance, hydrothermal vents. 
where you would have alternating as the tides go out, dry cycles, as the tides come back in, wet cycles, and you could have easily clay surfaces on the bottom. So, <clears throat> but if you have tides, you need something that causes the tides. And what causes the tides? Well, the moon causes the tides, as it turns out. And so, this may be a place where uh, the moon plays a role in the origin of life. Uh, and the fact that we do have a really unusually large moon uh, for an Earth-like planet. Um, so if indeed uh, uh, these tides are important, if wet-dry cycles are important, if the moon indeed uh, having a large moon is important, is again uh, likely very unusual for an Earth-sized planet to have a moon the size of our moon. Uh, this is approximately the relative size of the Earth and the moon. Uh, and so if that's the case, then again, planets like Earth would have a moon, like the moon would be, we think, very rare. And this might help explain why life, we haven't detected life anywhere else in the universe yet. As far as we currently know, again, the caveat that we're just going to have to pepper this whole talk with. In terms of putting the pieces together, we know what the pieces of life are, but we don't know how you put them together in what order, under what conditions to get, to get life yet. So this is a nice image uh, the plot that comes from a paper, a review article by John Sutherland, who is probably the most famous uh, person who's done the most in the origins of life uh, research uh, community. He wrote this article uh, where he talked about the end of the beginning. So what's the state of the art as of well, 2017, but this really hasn't changed much since then. Uh, he puts the current state of the art right here, which is not very far, both in, in terms of getting to something which is a lie that you can make in the laboratory, or even to this thing called LUCA here. So we're, we're still quite a long ways off uh, from making anything that's even like a biological molecule, uh, like a real biological molecule in the laboratory, let alone an organism. So what's LUCA or who's LUCA? Well, uh, LUCA is the last universal common ancestor. So as it turns out, if you look at essentially the tree of life, uh, all the different families of animals, plants, the single-celled organisms, you can trace them all back to a single common ancestor, LUCA. And so this is very interesting. So all life essentially is uh, descended evolutionarily from, from the same uh, ancestor. But this raises interesting questions, because if there's one ancestor, then there, this implies one. And so we're, we're essentially all uh, from one origin of life that happened that eventually led to LUCA, eventually led to everything else. Now, whatever the conditions that are favorable for the uh, origin of life are, presumably they had to have obtained on Earth somewhere, right? Uh, so were they commonplace? Maybe so. But even if they were commonplace, was it uh, likely that if you have even the right ingredients under the right conditions that they would lead to the origin of life? Well, the fact that we only know of one origin of life on Earth indicates that maybe even if you have the right conditions and even if you put the right things in the right conditions, that it's still exceedingly rare to lead to life. Because, again, we only know that it happened once on Earth. Uh, now, of course, in principle, there, we might, there might be other origins of life on Earth that, we, that died off eventually uh, that we don't know about. So, again, as far as we currently know, only one. But nevertheless, it seems to indicate that even when you have the right stuff in the right under the right condition, that it's still unlikely uh, to happen. So, very interesting. Well, let's go back to the scientific perspective on life. Let's go back to our bacteria here, our E. coli. So, so what's the scientific definition for life? Well, 
it's somewhat disappointing that there is no scientific definition for life. What we have are characteristics of, of life. We have characteristics of life, but not a definition of what life itself is. So characteristics of living organisms, organisms respond to their environment, of course. They grow, they reproduce, they, there's some sort of heredity, so some sort of genetics involved. There's homeostasis. They respond to their environment and maintain their internal equilibrium. They have metabolism, so they, they produce energy from chemical reactions. They have cellular structure. These are, again, our, our descriptions of what living organisms are. It's not a definition of life. Uh, it's sort of ca- encapsulated in the, it's the NASA definition of, of what life is. So the NASA definition, unofficial NASA definition, is that life is a self-sustaining chemical system capable of dominating evolution. But again, this is more of a description of what life is, or what living organisms are, rather than life itself. And the reason is because if you look at life, so let's let's look at these cells and zoom in, and we see proteins. And those proteins are made of molecules that are made of atoms. Those atoms are made of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And those protons and neutrons are made of even smaller things. But the question is, as we've zoomed down all the way now to quarks, uh, where is the life? So, so where is life? Yeah, that, in, in, so essentially science, uh, whatever life is, it's invisible. There's no thing that science sees that you could say, point to and say, that's life. Anywhere as you go from cells to quarks. So, and since life is not per se studyable by science because we can't measure it, so we can't take a lifeometer and measure the life of, a, of a, an organism and say, okay, let's imagine the unit of life is the Darwin. This, this has a lifeometer measurement of 3.92.04, uh, Darwin's. So we can't say that. So, so that's the interesting thing about life. So what is life? Well, maybe life is, uh, some amount, uh, our, uh, sort of description for complexity. Maybe as you go from quarks to bacteria, there's some level of complexity at which you transition from non-living to living, uh, matter here. You go from non-living stuff to living organism. So that's something which I'm sure we'll be talking about uh, later on as well. Well, now let's switch gears. So we, we started talking about space. Uh, let's go back to space in a sense and talk about prebiotic molecules. So here we're not talking about proteins and we're not talking about uh, DNA and RNA itself, but we're talking about the molecules which go into form all these things. So we're talking about amino acids, nuclear bases, etc., as well as the molecules that those might have come from. Formamid is an example here. So uh, What's the space connection? Well, you may get prebiotic molecules from space, uh, as I'll argue here. So let me try to get you excited for this by showing you this rock. Okay, so this, uh, hopefully you're very excited now. It's uh, still early in the morning. More exciting than a, cu- a cup of cappuccino here, this rock. But what's exciting about this rock? Well, this rock is actually a meteorite. It's the Murchison meteorite. This is how you went to Washington, D.C. This is exactly how you can see it on a pedestal. So from an astrobiological point of view, what's interesting about this rock? Well, you can extract from it amino acids, believe it or not. This rock from space, you can get the building blocks of proteins from it. Uh, these in particular. So remember I said that life just uses on Earth the L anatomer of these amino acids, and it's a mystery as to why that's the case. Uh, well, it's very interesting that among these amino acids, of course, Everyone but this glycine has, is, is handed, has, has a left and right handed form. And that for some reason, unexplained reason, there is actually an excess of the left handed form in the meteorites. So very unusual. And yet that's, that's what was found. Uh, well, again, though, these are amino acids. They go into form proteins. The thinking is that RNA comes first. So for that, you need nucleobases. Uh, 
Well, you could also extract nucleobases from meteorites as well. Uh, and this has been done. Uh, these in particular. So again, some of these will look familiar to you now. So you can get these molecules, the building blocks of life, from rocks that come in from space, which is very unusual, you might think. This is a meteorite. What about comets? This is Comet 67 PCG, uh, which was visited uh, recently by the Rosetta mission. And they analyzed, in particular, this gas and dust coming off of the, 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 the comet here. Uh, so what did they find there? Well, they found prebiotic molecules coming off of the comet in the middle of the solar system. They found, in particular, glycine, uh, methylamine, and ethylamine coming off of this comet. Very unusual to have the building blocks of life or prebiotic molecules coming off of a comet. Well, how do you get these molecules forming in space? Well, that's a lot of what I, I study. And the answer seems to be, if you, at least based on laboratory experiments, if you have ice, and we'll talk about what this ice is, and you irradiate the ice, you expose the ice to radiation, uh, then you get prebiotic molecules like amino acids here. So without doing any sort of this kind of chemistry, you get the building blocks of life. So what's the connection to space? Well, first of all, this ice that we're talking about is not just water ice. It's a mix of both water, but also carbon monoxide and methanol and methane and formaldehyde. Okay, So it's a mixture of that and many other things. All right, so you've got the ice, uh, uh, and this leads us to talking about stardust. So how do you take this stuff that you study in the laboratory and apply it to space? Well, you start with a stardust grain, and my apologies for my very unartistic representation of a stardust grain here. It's, it could be a potato as well. The stardust grain, and the stardust grain is, is in a molecular cloud full of gas molecules, uh, and there's an interaction between the gas molecules and the surrounding gas. Eventually, they collide with the dust grain, stick to it, and you form this molecular ice. So this is the ice that you'd have in space, coating microscopic dust grains. Okay, so you've got ice. What about radiation? Well, radiation you have uh, in the form of cosmic rays. The cosmic rays are ubiquitous in space, and they're constantly bombarding these dust grains and breaking apart all the molecules in the ice and just like in the experiments that I showed you, forming amino acids in the laboratory, um, in these ice mantles coating dust grains, we're pretty sure that you're also similarly forming amino acids, nucleobases, simple sugars, all these prebiotic molecules. Well, this is all well and good, but this is happening in interstellar space. How are you going to take that from interstellar space to a planet? Well, let's follow the, the sort of evolution of these dust grains. So what happens is essentially they snowball together uh, as the molecular cloud evolves. Uh, they stick together, eventually forming comets. So comets are essentially snowballs of uh, microscopic ice-coated interstellar dust grains. So when the ice is forming, this is in what we call the dense cloud stage, the interstellar nebulae, like you've seen many pictures of from the Hubble Space Telescope. And these dense clouds typically will start to collapse. And so every solar system, ours included, formed from a molecular cloud, a collapsing molecular cloud. And so taking with it all those ice-covered uh, dust grains full of uh, amino acids and nucleobases, et cetera. Uh, so what you have here is an accretion disk. At the center of that accretion disk, you have the developing star. And in the disk itself, you have the developing planets. So the planets are forming from this material. Eventually, the star ignites, the fusion ignites in the star, clears out most of the dust that's remaining, and voila, you've got your solar system. But all during this time, 
Again, just like as we talked about with Archaean Earth, you have heavy bombardment from meteorites and comets. So this is a way that you can take stuff, molecules formed in interstellar space, prebiotic molecules, uh, millions of years uh, in the past, and bring it to a young developing planet. And we think that this is generally the case for most planets that this would occur. Uh, introduce lots of prebiotic material to, again, warm little ponds where however life began, it could uh, kickstart uh, the origin of life uh, on that world. So we started in space, we sort of looped through talking about life, and we've ended in space. So I'll stop there. And thank you very much for listening.